Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome to Housing Wire Daily. I'm Sarah Wheeler, Editor-in-Chief at HW Media, and my guest today is Senior Mortgage Reporter Georgia Cromry. We're going to talk about the FHFA, the GSEs, and their priorities on affordable housing. Congress has just confirmed Sandra Thompson as FHFA Director, but her battle on some fronts is just beginning. She's made it clear that FHFA will focus on addressing the racial homeownership gap and making sure the GSEs fulfill their duty for underserved markets. We have a lot to discuss, so let's jump in. Georgia, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Sarah. And thanks for stepping in for me last week when uh, I I had no voice. You did a great job. No problem. (laughs) Well, we have a lot to talk about today, as always, with your beat. So Sandra Thompson um, you know, we thought we were going to get that. We, we've been waiting on pins and needles for that confirmation to go through. She's confirmed. So let's talk about some of the issues now that she faces um, and, and she's been dealing with since she's been interim director of the FHFA. Yeah. So um, as our listeners probably know, she's been in the seat since um, since since June, so coming up on one year, um, although, you know, she wasn't nominated for the permanent position until um, late 2021, so about six months after she had she had been doing it in, in a temporary capacity, and it's not like she has uh, waited for the Senate's blessing to take action on, on um, many matters, so you know she's she's been um she's been a pretty active acting director and there's a precedent for that as well there have been very um very active uh acting directors at the FHFA and acting directors that stay acting directors without senate confirmation for um for a number of years like Ed DeMarco but she's finally getting confirmed it was it seemed it was on the calendar yesterday which was a tuesday the 24th um and uh they they got everything done the vote um just up and until hers and then they stopped for the night so it looks like today they will resume voting at around 11 a.m. and and her um her vote is scheduled um if uh they they close debate on it. Her vote is scheduled around 2.30 p.m. So that should happen this afternoon. But, you know, I think it's interesting to think about what, uh, you know, what might change when she is nominated, if there's any, um, if there are any items that she's considering that might, you know, see some, see some movement after she's nominated. So, you know, I've been hearing from lobbyists and industry insiders for, um, for a long time that some of the more controversial items before her might be just waiting for Senate confirmation because the confirmation process in recent years has become so, um, so politicized. Um, and, you know, certainly there's the example of Julia Gordon, who took a really long time to get confirmed. So I, so I, I think that any nominee, this is not just a, a Sandra Thompson issue, any nominee is probably quite aware that, that you know, this, this process can kind of go off the rails. Um, but, but a couple of the matters that are before her that are, you know, we expect something on them soon is perhaps a conclusion to the, um, to the decision of whether the GSEs can use alternative credit scoring models. So that would be credit scoring models, including 
uh, Vantage score, including a more modern version of FICO that would include things like rental payment history, utilities, um, telephone bills, um, things like that, that that could help borrowers who otherwise would not qualify, um, you know, get that credit score that would allow them to get conventional financing. Um, another thing that um, that that is uh, that is before FHFA right now, um, they haven't released the equitable housing finance plans. Although um, the GSEs were required to submit them by the end of 2021, and they did submit them by the end of 2021. So it's so it's been sort of this this uh, this this waiting game since then. Um, and the FHFA told me that um, that they had only planned to release them at the beginning of the year, and plans change. <laughs> but it really makes me wonder: what are they waiting for? What kinds of revisions did they um, did they ask for, if any? Um, you know, and that that process is is not public. So, um, so those those are a couple of things that I will be very interested um, to to see if they are finalized once um, Sandra Thompson gets confirmed by the Senate. No, it's really interesting to think about the fact that, you know, uh, because I don't feel like she's been shy about taking on some pretty big issues since she has jumped in. But I I like your point that there might even be things that she's sort of waiting to really uh, get into the deep waters on. That credit scoring, I feel like is definitely on the radar. Um, I was at the MBA secondary conference last week and you know, one of the Rohit Chopra's session, so he's the CFPB director, he he called out credit scoring specifically and talking about, you know, looking at that. And so I feel like it's definitely part of the overall picture of them trying to say, you know, how do we do more fair lending, fair servicing? Um, what does it look like for consumer protections? And how do we just reach out to people who have been shut out of this process, you know, for various things? And credit scoring is just right in the middle of that. You know, it's interesting you bring up Rohit Chopra on this because a lot of proponents of alternative credit scoring models and and really proponents of including things like uh, utilities and telephone bills and on-time rent payments, proponents of including that in in mortgage underwriting to make a credit decision are sometimes kind of worried about the CFPB's stance on that because the CFPB at the same time is really skeptical of, of using data in business decisions, really skeptical of ABMs, for example, you know, re- really skeptical of data in general. And so there's, um, so I have heard um, quietly um, that there is quite a bit of concern that Rohi Chopra is, you know, not not looking at something like um, alternative credit scoring models, you know, as, as kindly as proponents of it would hope. So interesting. He, I mean, he specifically called out, you know, he talked about the FICO monopoly, Um so I thought that was interesting, which obviously, I mean, they do have a monopoly right now, That, uh, but I, I thought that was interesting from him. So that will be, you know, we'll keep an eye on that for sure. But I do think there's a coordinated, you know, since the Biden administration came in, you know, better than I, that, I mean, there's just been a really coordinated plan of like, this. these are the different priorities that he has throughout the, you know, whether it's HUD or FHA or, or CFPB, I feel like there's a more we can we can chart that better in in this administration maybe sometimes than we have in, in past administrations where it's like we're we're working off the same uh, set of guidelines here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, there there definitely has been more of an emphasis on affordability. I mean, and Sandra Thompson came in at FHFA um, 
you know, made made a number of um, of changes on that front um, really soon. So she has she has not been waiting for confirmation. You know, she set um, new affordability goals with um, with a, a new target for loan purchases in minority and low income census tracts. That was new. Um, you know, and she and she said really early on that that racial equity um, was going to be a, a priority. I I just wonder, um, and I'm keen to hear what FHFA thinks about this. I wonder what is waiting on Senate confirmation. What um, what additional what what else can she do with um, with Senate confirmation? Right. Well, now you have me wondering, (laughs) like, what's coming up? You know, she came in in such a you know it's a pretty uh, unique and spectacular fashion of you know the fact that there was a Supreme Court case that said yes, the president can you know, uh, fire the director of the FHFA at will. That was how Calabria, Mark Calabria, the former FHFA director was dispatched and then she was Mm. brought in. So she's had a pretty interesting tour of duty already. Yeah, it is really interesting. And FHFA, I am always fascinated by the role of FHFA because they are technically um, an independent regulator. They're not a cabinet level agency like HUD or, um, you know, other, other agencies that are like directly under the control of the Biden administration. But at the same time, it is under the control of the Biden administration because the director can be removed at will. And so it's this sort of, is it, is it a cabinet level agency? Is it a regulator? It's kind of both. It's, you know, it's it's definitely not as um, as political as some of the other federal agencies, but it might become that way. Um, it, it might become more political. Yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to see how you know an agency that's involved in some of these things doesn't become political because these are pretty interesting decisions. You know, one of the, one of the um, one of your other recent stories is about how the GSCs are handling one of their mandates to, you know, their duty to serve is, is directly tied to manufactured homes. So can you, can you tell us a little bit about that story? Yeah. So, um, so the GSEs have the duty to serve three underserved markets and, uh, one of them is manufactured housing. And this is, this is a congressional mandate. So they, so they have this statutory obligation to serve this market and they, they do, they both purchase uh, manufactured housing loans. Um, but they only purchase those manufactured housing loans that are titled as real property. So they have, um, you know, they have, they have normal financing. Um, and, um, and they also finance manufactured home communities, um, with commercial loans. So that's, you know, more, more, um, on the multifamily end of things. Um, but they don't, neither of them finance the most affordable manufactured homes, which are titled, um, as personal property, not with mortgage financing. And that financing, it's shorter term, um, it comes with higher interest rates and, um, and fewer consumer protections. So things like the foreclosure process that, that is, you know, highly regulated in mortgage. Um, is really abbreviated in, um, in, in chattel lending. This kind of financing is called chattel. The loans are called chattel. Um, and so they don't have a, the same foreclosure process. They have a repossession process. They're also not covered by the CARES Act. They have uh, fewer disclosures at time of closing. So, it, so it's a very different market, but it is the most deeply affordable part of the manufactured housing market, which poses a really 
I think a, a, a really difficult question for the GSEs and what their role is in it because, you know, they, they, uh, they, they have been very reluctant to enter this, um, this market. And it's not clear if this kind of financing, the short-term, higher interest rate, fewer consumer protections, it's not clear if that can be a vehicle for wealth building the same way that conventional mortgage financing can. So it's just, um, it's unclear what the um, what the GSE's role should be, but it looks like at least Freddie Freddie Mac is they have a target to purchase these kind of loans by 2024. They have to get FHFA approval, but they're they're working on it. And I started out with this story, kind of um, wondering to myself why uh, you know why it was taking until 2024 when this duty to serve this market has been around for a number of years. And why Freddie Mac had a target and Fannie Mae didn't have a target and, you know, what industry groups thought about that and what affordable housing groups thought about that. And so it, 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 tur- it turned into a, an interesting story just because I, I tried to kind of get inside the different viewpoints on this. And I think that there are compelling arguments really on a lot of sides of this issue. Yeah, I agree. Um, you know, one of the difficulties is that in, in for a manufactured home, you don't, the person who owns that home or is paying off that home, whatever, they don't own the land underneath the home. And so this is one of the really tricky parts of this is like, it, in some ways, it's been handled more like, you know, personal property or like a car, as opposed to a house, because it is, it's just hard to get your hands wrapped around. Like, what is it that this person owns? because they don't own the land underneath it. And and then if they move that, like the, how does that affect the value? Also, what is the value when it's a depreciation, depreciating asset in a way that a house that's, you know, on a foundation of whatever kind, you know, it's just different. I think it's been hard for people to get their heads wrapped around, like, how do you value that? How, and to your point, is it really a wealth creation vehicle or is it more like really um, sort of stabilized renting? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, when So when the land is um, financed separately from the house, the house is not going to enjoy the um, the appreciation and the value of, of the land. And so it's it's most of the time, although, you know, some, some people wonder if this is true in all markets at all times, you know, perhaps if um, home prices are appreciating so rapidly, there could be some instances where a home in, in a certain area appreciate um, that's financed this way but by and large it is a depreciating asset and and so it you know it really raises questions can you pass that on are you able to build intergenerational wealth is that um, is that something that you can build equity in and then you know you start kind of thinking of what is the role of the GSEs in this is is it to help people have a vehicle to build long-term wealth or is it to provide safe affordable housing now to you know provide liquidity for the for the market so that people can have safe affordable housing now and those are and those are two different things and they've been combined in the conventional mortgage market but you know it raises it raises a lot of questions for um for whether those two things do go together for chattel um and i don't think the gses yet you know have 
have answers on that, and FHFA doesn't doesn't have answers on that either. They said that they are going to, you know, that it, that any purchase of these kinds of loans would would have to meet safety and soundness requirements. But we don't know what that looks like or how that would be um, how that would be accomplished. There, you know, the the GSEs could kind of look at the market and demand some changes that lenders meet some um, requirements in order to have you know a more robust secondary market. Um, they've done similar things with uh, manufactured home communities requiring tenant lease pad protections, you know, that landlords give a certain amount of notice if they're going to um, terminate a lease and, you know, really really some, some basic requirements. They could do something like that with chattel. But, you know, I, I think this issue of um, it being a depreciating asset is one that's, that's kind of hard to get around. Um, how, how long are these loans the loan terms for? Are they not 30 years, are they? So they're, they're not typically 30 years, but um, Cascade Mortgage, um, which is a, a, a chattel lender, um, said that their terms are usually 23 years, which is still a long, that's still a long time. Um, and of, of course, there are loans with shorter terms. But yeah, it's, it, these are not 30-year uh, loans. And it's important to recognize that this part of the market, the reason it is you know, so appealing, I think, for policymakers is, is because of how deeply, deeply affordable it is compared to the rest of the market. I do think it's interesting when you think about a, even a 23-year loan on something that is, to start with, could could be, it's generally under $125,000, correct? Um, your average? Yeah. The median chattel loan amount is 59000 according to the CFPB. So even if you have shorter term financing, higher interest rate, it's still a much more affordable option if you're comparing that to site built. Right. But it does come with some drawbacks that, you know, you have, you're going to have fewer, um, fewer consumer protections. And it's unclear um, to me if you can build equity and build long-term wealth. It's also, you know, you have to incentivize lenders to want to do this. So, you know, you can understand why the GSEs want to talk about, you know, the higher interest rates that people have on these, you know, these are structured very differently than a mortgage loan, but also, I mean, it's 32 years on something that is depreciating that whole entire time, right? And and is a much smaller loan amount. So you wonder, you know, right now I, I think the average cost to close a mortgage loan is like over nine thousand dollars. So, you know, you have to think too, like the regulation as always is like there needs to be regulation, right? There needs to be oversight. At the same time, if you make it too difficult, if you make it where people, you know, I mean, it can't cost nine thousand dollars to close a loan like this. There's no way. Yeah. Yeah, there are a lot of unresolved questions, and I think that I think um, you know the the GSEs are moving toward um, potentially financing this kind of loan, but there are a lot of questions that they need to resolve with their regulator. But you know, it was interesting to kind of talk through um, some of the potential risks and and kind of how the GSEs might see it, and how industry groups or proponents of you know affordable housing advocates proponents of of GSE financing for these kinds of loans see it. So one thing that I found just jaw-dropping was the seriously delinquent rate during COVID for chattel loans was much, much lower than even mortgage loans. So I'm not, so we're not comparing it to, you know, chattel loans to the rest of the manufactured housing market, but, you know, the delinquency rate for chattel loans in 2021 was 
0.38%. And that's just like, let that sink in. When you think about the delinquency rate for FHA loans, I mean, that's, it, it was, it was in the double digits. So industry groups point to that as, you know, an indication that this asset class is, um, there are some uh, unique qualities to it, but there are, like, there's a, there is a way to, to finance this sustainably. And, um, you know, the, the fact that it is so deeply affordable and, you know, it, it appears that, that perhaps that affordability kind of worked as a buffer for those homeowners in 2020 and 2021. Well, and also that the market has found its equilibrium outside of being maybe completely regulated. I mean, I, I know there are regulations for these kind of loads. I'm not saying that, but like outside of what the GSEs, you know, might might impose on them, it's already it's already found the thing. If if you have found the the sweet spot where you don't have those high delinquency rates, I mean, that's saying something too, right? Like you've matched the you know, how the loans that you're giving to the people you're giving them to and the underwriting and, you know, it's kind of found its own equilibrium. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good point. I, I think that the, the sector really would like to see the GSEs in this market. I think, I think that, you know, they, they um, might not, you know, they might not love having a bunch of extra uh, requirements, you know, the, the consumer protection end of it. But I think, you know, having more liquidity, I think, I think they would like that. I think there's demand for it. There's, there's a demonstrated demand for it. There was private label securitization, two private label securitizations um, in the past couple of years from um, from Cascade Mortgage. So, so there's definitely appetite um, for it. And you know, there there is there is no small amount of frustration from the chattel industry that the GSEs are reluctant, and they they feel like that reluctance is really is really misplaced. They feel like the GSEs are thinking too much of, of the past where um, the manufactured home sector had its own sub subprime crisis before um, before the wider mortgage market did and they um, and, and Fannie Mae got got wrapped up in that with some really bad loans that they bought and then that company went under just a couple of years later so they they feel that the the GSEs are are um, you know still kind of penalizing the sector for those issues which um, which they they claim have been resolved and the the underwriting standards are um, you know more more stringent they're not doing um, the subprime behaviors that they were in the past so there's there's a lot of there's a lot of frustration from the manufactured home lenders that, that the GSEs are um, are not in this market. Well, I think that, you know, the the two stories we've talked about here, you've got you've got a new FHFA director who definitely affordable housing is one of her priorities. And we have one of these issues. So it'll be interesting how those two things work together now that she's confirmed and and might be able to take on some things. But but I think it's less a, you know, do they want to get in and more, you know, the devil's in the details. How do they do this in a way that makes sense for everybody. So we'll continue to look for your reporting on that. Um, are there other stories that you're working on that we can look forward to reading? Yeah. So um, so I can't get into the details on this one um, as far as naming names, but, um, but I'm working on a story about a, a mortgage lender that has a really interesting lobby campaign um, and, and with um, FHFA, or they are lobbying FHFA, and they're actually teaming up with one of their competitors to do so. So, um, Ooh, so that sounds interesting and a, and a new model maybe for a new age. So I, I'll, I'll look forward to reading that. Well, thanks so much, Georgia, for coming on. Uh, always informative and, and love having you. Thanks, Sarah. 
have the 2022 housing market forecast changed? Or how is the industry navigating the shift to a purchase-driven market? HousingWire's premium content program, HW+, answers questions like these and offers a variety of member-exclusive benefits that are tailored to what you need to stay competitive and agile in today's fast-paced market. Go to housingwire.com forward slash membership to join today. With your HW Plus membership, you get access to longer-form digital content, the HousingWire magazine, member-exclusive rates to in-person events like HousingWire Annual, and more. Thanks for listening to Housing Wire Daily. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment. And make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.